My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Could the legends of the Fountain of Youth been an allegory or a direct clue, maybe even misdirection meant to disguise the true El Dorado as Florida, Atlantis as the Caribbean, and the Gulf of Mexico as the true Fertile Crescent? Could stone anchors, lost mounds, and coquina stone deposits all be pointing to the real story of the pre-Columbian America we've lost? Could groups of people have been traveling to the so-called New World as far as 7,000 years ago? Well, today's guest seems to be on the trail, given that he calls Florida home. Today we're talking to Dr. Narco Longo, the man behind Old World Florida, a mystic mark. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Narco Longo. You see this kind of rock wall with mm. the spring oozing out of it. Well, back in there is a cave. There's a painting, a etching, I'm not sure, of Juan Ponce de Leon being led up to pretty much this exact area. You would only be able to know that if you've been there and seen it. But it's one of the only instances where you have a wall, a cave, and the spring is oozing out of that cave. And there's a picture of Juan Ponce de Leon going up to that, not a picture, sorry, a painting. So this might, I'm not saying this is the fountain of youth, but it's beautiful. There's processes in the human body that people would refer to as the fountain of youth, right? The elixir of life. And that's okay that all of that remains true. All of that holds true. Just because Shakespeare wrote about King Henry does not mean that King Henry did not exist, right? So people need to understand that a allegory does not negate the literal interpretation. So, but if we're looking for a literal interpretation, I can say confidently, Florida is the only landmass that fits that bill of a land of infinite flowing spring water. Such abundant spring water that, you know, Nestle 
Coca-Cola, all of these companies have gone in and have sucked out millions of gallons a day. And that's sad, you know, and that should be, have an end put to it. But it doesn't even scratch, doesn't even make a dent. Each of these springs pumps out thousands of gallons every, you know, every couple hours. Some of them a million gallons a day. It's, it's absurd. Right on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today is someone who's been on my show before, and not this show, a different show. And he's a friend of Juan's. They do a podcast together. His name is Dr. Narco Longo, and he has the Old World Florida YouTube channel, as well as the Coquina Cowboy show that I just alluded to that he does with Juan, making his maiden appearance here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Dr. Narco, how are you, brother? You laugh when I said your name. Is that is that an alias? Would you prefer to be called something else? No, it's an it's an alias, but you know. That's what you're going uh, by. Yeah. Okay. Not Nick or, mm-hmm. or John or Rick or so I I mm-hmm. don't know Dr. Narco's real name. Maybe I just guessed correctly. Who knows? But I'm not gonna attempt anything further. I got to say, brother, when Juan introduced your stuff to me, I was very compelled. I was a little jealous. I'm like, oh, here we go. Juan's getting in all this stuff with some guy without me. And I'm excited that we're doing this together because you're touching on a lot of topics that connect in one way or another to things that I've been researching over the past few years. And I especially appreciate having you on the show after having the first two conversations with you. The first one was a little off kilter for what we usually do. But the second one, I feel like, you know, we we discussed the old world subject from an angle that I appreciate. Because I think there is a lot of, you know, propaganda is a loaded term. I think there's a lot of um, very amateurish research that's being presented in a very professional looking way. And that is not at all what you have on your YouTube channel. Your YouTube channel has very detailed research and is presented in a fun way that looks professional. So I want to hand that to you and say that, you know, um, among this topic, there's a lot of hucksters and hoaxsters and and you guys, uh, your research over there is, is, it's top notch, in my opinion. You know, take that for what it's worth. But particularly when it connects to, you know, this idea that there were other cultures here that were advanced in North America, uh, way before Columbus, that for the most part have been forgotten or erased from our normal history for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the big indications for me up here in New England was the stone walls and how many of them look like they have 
really, really old lichen. And I looked this up, you know, lichen grows an inch every like 100 years or something, right? So if you have like a six inch across piece of lichen on a rock, well, that might have been there for, you know, 600 years, right? That's a, a rough estimate. I might be wrong on that exactly. But I started noticing the the texture and the patina on some of these older rock walls. And I started thinking, you know, maybe there's something deeper here, right? And it, with Tartaria being like this huge topic at the time, I was like, oh, maybe it has to do with that. And, and I was, you know, sort of surprised to find uh, so much history here in New England, where I'm from, that I just was not aware of. And I feel like you had a similar experience digging through your state's history, being in Florida, and where we kind of have the similarity, at least to me, is you noticed these stone anchors, or you at least noticed, um, you know, these mm -hmm. strange anomalies, and I noticed these stone walls. So, Maybe I'm wrong there, but what exactly kicked off this uh, interest in, in digging into the, the alternative or forgotten history of where you're from? Mm -hmm. Well, I've kind of always been into these uh, alternative subjects like conspiracy theories, the truth, uh, the occult, stuff like that. But uh, Tartaria came around and I, I was like late to the Tartaria party, I guess you could say. And uh, I just realized no one was talking about Florida. And I knew there had to be some stuff there. And pretty much the first Wikipedia page I pulled up about like Henry Flagler or something, you know, the, it's all right there for you to see. You have a textbook reset, you know, people like to say that word, but they can often point to clear examples. Well, in Florida, you have about three or four different changing of hands where a whole land mess changed hands, right? From the, from someone to the Spanish, parts of it went to the French up north near like South Carolina, um, that area, because that was all like Florida territory at one time. And then it went to the English for a period, back to the Spanish, then to the American. So, you know, you, within those, you have all these opportunities for rewrites of history. Right. And that's even easier to swallow once you hear that pretty much the entire indigenous population was taken out, genocided. So it's right there to see. So that's kind of what got me into it is uh, first looking at some of the architecture, the Moorish architecture. The south, southeast United States has some of the most Moorish looking buildings in the world, you know, outside of the Middle East, of course. And we're told that was all just post-Civil War, you know, what white people building it for no reason, essentially, mm. when I believe there's much more to that story. Right. Especially once you understand when Columbus left when he did, whether you believe he was real or not, you know, that's okay. But when he supposedly left, lines up precisely with the expulsion of the Moors from Granada. No, sorry, from Spain in general in the, the War of Granada. And they would have either escaped to um, the Americas or have already been established in the Americas. 
because the Moors themselves are the descendants of the Phoenicians, in part uh, Berbers, but Phoenician descendants as well. Because that whole area, Barbary, that's they call it Barbary, that's where we get Berber. That was all Phoenician colonies back in the back in the old ancient times, and they were at war with Greek and and uh, the. <clears throat> Greece and Rome, so they got written out of history. And fast forward about a thousand years, you have the Moors getting written out of history, largely European history. And that carries over into Florida as well, into the new world, mm. quote unquote, new world. But as we're all finding out, it seems to be a bit older than the, than the old world. You know? Right. Right. And I, I remember you mentioning the last time we spoke how, Phoenician and Finnish are really the same uh, word and culture if you just take away the, the difference in spelling. And I tend to agree from what I've seen, you know, our idea of countries and cultures have been skewed, whereas in the past it was way more fluid. Different cultures were, you know, trading across sea routes. They weren't constricted to one site. And maybe mm -hmm. they had one place of origin, but they spread out really far. And and when you talked about just now Columbus being this sort of, uh, I don't know, pivotal point in history. I don't know if you said that exactly, but that's how I see it is a sort of pivotal point in history where uh, these cultures that were possibly here in the New World were defeated by the Spanish or left which maybe explains why the Spanish went and, and took over a lot of that territory. So where, where do you want to go from here? We want to maybe give the oldest examples and work our way back, or should we start with some more recent stuff and work our way? You know, uh, how, how, how should we approach this? Cause there's a lot of information here and, you know, some of these, stone anchors that you show in your many videos uh they go back if i'm correct almost like three thousand five thousand years or or more more than that more than that yeah more than that and then right, there were probably other... seven thousand plus wow most and, of them and there was the 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 bog in um excuse me i'm looking down at my notes windover farm where mm -hmm. they found people 6,000 years old and had European DNA, no traces of any what we would consider, you know, indigenous North American DNA. And this is in Florida. So clearly there are some pretty old examples of, of uh, evidence for things that don't match the, you know, timeline as we're told. So where do you want to start? What do you think is the best evidence for, for people to wrap their head around this? Well, I think a great starting point is the Phoenician Finnish connection. Mm -hmm. Like you said, like you said, um, these cultures might not have been so divided by skin color necessarily, at least when it comes to occupation. So my friend Ben from analog waking up with analog, he, uh, he let me in on, um, you know, basically the opinion that the Phoenicians were not necessarily a single group of people. It was a guild of mariners. It was an occult order that used maritime activity as its, um, 
allegorical process, much in the same way like alchemy uses uh, chemistry, right, to reflect higher principles and symbols. This would be what the Phoenician order would be, the Phoenician order, right? So that's why you would have some maybe dark-skinned, light-skinned Phoenicians. People want to say, were they white, were they black? It's not that simple, especially when it comes to the Phoenicians. And especially when you, when you realize Phoenician was a phonetic system, not a language. And actually, every, uh, almost every Western modern language using the Latin alphabet is pretty much or sort of the Roman alphabet, whatever we call it, is a phonetic language. Phonetic language is basically where one letter equals one sound, mm. appro approximately. So you can teach this to pretty much anybody, especially if you're a navigator, a mariner, a seaman that is going far across the ocean and landing in perhaps unpredictable places. Um, they would do their best, but you know, if you're going from Finland to Florida, you might not land precisely where you want to. So they would encounter, encounter different people, these Northern Viking people, the Finnish, right? And uh, the Finnish language, the original Finnish, not modern Finnish, is one of the oldest languages in the world. And that's because it's a predecessor to Phoenician. It is runic. Okay, the, the Vikings, the Northern Germanic peoples used runic language. Well, when you look at Carthage, when you look at North Africa, when it was a Phoenician colony, what was their language called? Punic. So Phoenician is like the oldest phonetic language, written language, alphabet, the oldest alphabet, I should say. And that's because they could teach it to anyone they met. Uh, is A, B, B, and they can teach this symbol by symbol to anybody, and you can be begin to articulate, and it makes the the uh, process of trading with people you've never met so much easier. Now, uh, the Finnish people are known to be craftsmen, finesse. This is where the word finesse comes from. They have finesse when they make things because they have this ancient tradition of exporting goods from Northern Europe to all these foreign, foreign places. Now, for example, when you come to Florida, there's all these artifacts that don't belong in Florida. Um, some of them are in the Marco Island artifacts. Some of them are the bog bodies for sure. Um, they themselves are essentially Vikings, Danish looking people. I have uh, slides that show how the bog bodies match exactly ones in Finland. Now that's significant to Florida as well, because Florida, Lake Worth, Florida, the city I'm in right now has the highest concentration of Finnish people outside of Finland, definitely in America. So that's because the Gulf stream leaves Finland, sorry, it leaves Florida, Gulf of Mexico, and goes to the Gulf of Finland, Gulf Stream, Gulf to Gulf. Right. So yeah. these Vikings 
ancient Vikings, who are the Phoenicians, same people, would take the Gulf Stream from Finland to the Gulf of Mexico, where the warm water oozes out of the ground in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. Much in the same way that uh, Florida has the highest concentration of freshwater springs in the world. Right. So th- there's your fountain of youth. That is the fountain of youth. That's why the Spanish were here for about 300 years. And uh, yeah, we're pretty much going all over the place. But I can flip through some slides if you want to see some stuff that I'm talking about. Yeah, please do. I uh, Just to maybe help people wrap their heads around it, I think all of this relates. I mean, we, we jump from the Phoenicians to the Finnish there, and, and the Greeks understood the, the Phoenicians as, you know, particularly connected to Atlantis, right? I think Plato uh, talked about, you know, having some sort of discussion with a guy who was uh, Phoenician or Egyptian, and they were saying, you know, your Greek culture is like a child compared to our very old, you know, tradition, mm-hmm. right? And and your understanding is equally uh, childish. He was saying to Plato, who was just then learning about Atlantis and all this stuff. And I don't think I, I mentioned this, but uh, that's what we're talking about here, Florida as Atlantis. And I think you have a great deal of evidence to uh, to posit that maybe Florida was the, the exact site where Atlantis was. And you mentioned this in our past conversation, how the Fertile Crescent isn't quite the crescent that you might imagine, and the Gulf of Mexico seems to fit that description, uh, and I would agree. Mm-hmm. So here mm-hmm. we are looking at uh, Johann von Sachs, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us about this gentleman. Yeah. So Johann Christian von Sachs, he is a resident of Tarpon Springs, Florida, and basically uh, decades ago he he noticed these ancient stone anchors that were scattered all across people's lawns in front of neighborhoods in and around the Tampa Bay area, mostly in Pinellas and Pasco County. He can, he could bring you about to about 2000 of them, big ones, you know, notable ones. Now you can find them all over Florida scattered, but in this area, they're so concentrated that it's, it's pretty remarkable. So that's Johann Christian von Sachs. He has royal blood, which he believes assisted him in, you know, the process of, uh, psychically, you know, intuitively being guided to these stones because of the implications that they have, you know, and I should say before he found this, he was already a, an Egyptologist, a pyramidologist and a, um, psychic archaeologist, basically. And here's an example. You have a stone a stone with a hole bored through it. And in the top left corner, if you can see my mouse, there's a worn down edge where a rope has been, you know, clasped through the, the top of that, that hole, basically. Right. And, and has been being tugged on for hundreds, thousands of years. Right. Being, and, and, being, yeah. Well, and sorry to cut you off. Maybe you're getting to this, but to the maybe un, uh, 
unexamined person who hasn't seen the stuff like this before, they might say, well, how, how did you get it there? Obviously, they drilled a hole in it to pick it up, right? But you can tell uh, if you really examine it that the boring hole, the inside of it, it has the same weathering as the exterior of the rock, as you mentioned in your documentary. And this type of mm -hmm. stone is so hard that, yeah, it would probably take uh, maybe decades or, or centuries of a rope grinding against it to create that kind of uh, groove there. Mm -hmm. I'll show you a good example of a groove. Here's one of the largest ones. Right. And in the bottom right corner, basically, it's cut off, but you can see where the rope, again, was hooked into the side. Now, eroded over time. Now, you mentioned in the documentary that's on your channel, and the link is in the description for folks who want to go and check that out. Um, you mentioned that the locals call this the silver spur, and maybe it, yep. you, know, you need to be there in person and notice. I'm curious, does it have a sort of silvery shimmer? Is it glimmer? Like, are there any qualities to the rock that might, you know, like what? No. No? Okay. What is this made out of? It's, is it they're, they're all limestone. Okay, wow. They're all uh, like Kakina bedrock, wow, limestone, clump, right. clumped up shell, right? But so this is uh, basically in rocks. This is on the softer side. You could chisel this easily, but it it does weigh a shit ton. Mm. And to answer your question, it's not silver, but it is shaped for sure it's it's almost like an arrowhead it's pointy it's jagged mm, right and it, it's covered in like moss or i don't know if you call it uh, lichen or whatever you're saying i don't know how to pronounce that but uh uh either that's a very very dark and old patina or that's a heavy layer of moss or something like that yeah no there's definitely i think i think limestone might have a particular you know uh effect in certain environments right and then who knows maybe based on where it is what type of biome it is that would determine what type of lichen or moss would grow on any given rock but yeah the ones i was mentioning earlier like the lichen circles that you see on some of the stones around here I'm almost certain that that's like a temperate forest type of be like plant. It doesn't grow somewhere as warm okay. and humid as <laughs> as, uh, as as Florida. But yeah, this is really tremendous that they've moved all of these to sort of be featured in front of houses and in this apartment complex here. So the story is that they were sold by a member who maybe was a, or by a guy who was a member of the smithsonian institute they were sold to people to be lawn ornaments is that what we, the, the official story is as to how they ended up all over people's yards and whatnot it's not directly connected to the smithsonian it was just a case of they were scattered across the landscape and they decided to incorporate them into the landscaping mm. So I'll show you how this one in the center there, that patina has actually been power washed off because when they were putting these in neighborhoods, for some reason, they decided to bleach them. Um, now, this one, another very large one, th this one's over 10,000 pounds, possibly 15,000. 
This one's at least 8,000, maybe 10,000 pounds. This is what John has told me. Right. And before for the listening audience, we were looking at uh, giant Kokina stones with just one borehole. This one that John's standing next to in the picture has two boreholes in it, and it's probably the size of a Volkswagen. I mean, this is a huge Mm -hmm. stone right in the center of a a parking area or street. Mm -hmm. As big as an SUV. Wow. And basically that one I would call boring. But something about limestone, you know, limestone does occasionally make holes of water erosion. I think the people that were making these either would have taken it, taken advantage of those and smoothed smoothed them out. But on these ones, the edges are so sharp that this had to have been bored. Mm. And when you see how many rope marks there are that have been, um, you know, have worn down the rock in certain areas. This one also, what you're seeing, this has been power washed to remove the dark coating because they wanted it to be bright. I don't know. They put it in front of this neighborhood. It's not a very nice neighborhood. Could it Could it be that there was um, some sort of markings on them? I mean, one that you guys show right at the beginning of your documentary have clear carvings of faces uh, mm-hmm. in them uh yeah this the, one here um, this one. is it possible that they were you know i mean you said that this is a fairly soft stone if they're power washing it maybe they could have smoothed down some carvings that were in there mm-hmm. it's possible you can see on this one it looked like they tried power washing it in certain areas mm-hmm. it probably just took too much time mm-hmm. and they just gave up but that uh, sand dollar looking one, I call this one the sand dollar. Hmm. That's my nickname for it. If you see it from the side, yeah, it's no. very it's very thin from a from a like a sand dollar, okay. basically. And those two holes are pretty much parallel, perfectly parallel. Now, people say, "Well, that could be natural," and I say, "No." But if you want an example of something that could not be natural, here it is. Here's what you're looking for. This is basically a perfectly bored hole. This is boring. This is not erosion of any type. This is tooling, advanced tooling going through the rock, perfectly round, perfectly round hole. That that's like a little root or a little clump of dirt sticking out right Would there. Would you this say it, it's like a six inch in diameter for for people listening? Like uh, there's a hand there for reference, but we don't know how big the hand is. Would you say it's like a six foot dia- uh, six inch diameter? Probably less. Less. Okay. This this is one of the smallest holes we ever saw, and it's the most uh, advanced tool marks. It looks like. Right. I'd say this is maybe three inches. Wow. Um, about as long as a finger across. Yeah, certainly doesn't seem like uh accident. And, you know, we've seen a couple of these limestone uh, naturally occurring potholes at certain waterfalls. And I think I brought this up in one of our previous conversations that a past guest explained to me that that happens during lightning storms where the rock has a high concentration of iron in it and the lightning is attracted to it and it in this you know intense reaction shoots a a ball of stone out of the the rock and 
you know, I don't know how true that is. Past guest Topher claims to have seen that himself in Costa Rica. And I've seen the holes at several different sites. So these rocks do occur, you know, like it wouldn't be far-fetched to think that they found, you know, these pieces of coquina limestone looking like that on their own and then, you know, picking them up and putting them in place to be used in uh, as an anchor. That's a whole other story. I mean, uh, do you think that these, like, what's the theory on how they got scattered across the land? Was it a a giant storm? Was it, you know, like that Mm -hmm. maybe the water level was higher or lower at certain periods in time? What, how did they get kind of loosely scattered? Well, those bog bodies that we were talking about earlier, they, is my audio good? Yeah, you sound fine. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I was going through my, uh, the good mic, but, um, the bog bodies, you can date those for sure to at least 7,000 years ago because they're out in the ocean, or one of them is. That's the Manitoba or right, Minnesota. Right, there was the underwater burial ground that they found mm-hmm. off the Minnesota Key. Yeah, I, I did see yep. that. And that is the same style and age <clears throat> as the Windover Bog. The Windover Bog was inland. Um, kind of, I think near Orlando, I could be wrong, but Minnesota key was over near Venice, Florida on the West coast of Florida. So that's, uh, on the West coast and the East coast, same culture, this European DNA, European um, features and textile, like weaving technology that was thousands of years advanced for their time. So that's why they don't like talking about these. They that, also had strawberry, strawberry blonde hair. Yeah, that's that's another strange thing. I mean, I haven't seen that description, but in some of the Spanish explorers' descriptions, they have you know red-haired giants. They have you know very tall, supposedly Native mm-hmm. Americans with with very pale skin, but. Uh, yeah, that's that's strange for sure. You just mentioned the detailed textiles and uh, weaving. I saw a picture last night of King Philip, and for people who aren't aware, King Philip was not a European. He was a Native American named Metacomet, who the British basically, I think they mocked him a little bit, or I don't know, maybe they were being respectful by calling him King Philip. But in one of the images that Paul Revere drew of King Philip, he has this very intricate belt on with animals like woven patterns and just how intricate it looked seemed to strike me as like odd, you know, for what we're told, you know, uh, they didn't have, you know, the, the means to make stuff like that. But I, it seems like more often than not, we find evidence to contradict the mainstream <laughs> narrative on native Americans and, and, as we were talking about in a previous conversation, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that different European cultures have been coming here way before Columbus, not just the uh, uh, Moors, but the Finnish and everyone in between. You know, I mean, it, the, the weird part is, is how these words get all thrown in a grab bag and, you know, they lose their meaning over time. But um, we're looking at a 
another slide here, the Muskegee. Yes, you talked about this. So you're talking about uh, Native Americans that don't look so Native American, as we're told. Right. Well, the Muskegee, the Creeps, the Seminoles, the Miccosukee, and the Musquak, Musquaki. Those are up up north uh, near Canada, the Musquaki, and we're told they're unrelated. But you'll see how these very Arabic, Muslim, Moorish-looking people uh, are, in fact, Native Americans. So this is a Creek man. This is a Musquaki, um, a Fox tribe, but a Musquaki Indian with... I mean, that's a turban, you know, that's a, that's an Arabic person. Right. And very fine, what look like silk, even clothes. I mean, we, we mm -hmm. obviously this is an artistic rendition and not an actual and, photo, but I mean, it looks like garments, like very fine garments that they're wearing. Oh not, yeah. Not like Another, what we're told, like skin buckskins, right? That's nope. the image we're given. They had a lot of blue and purple, mm. the, the, uh, the, these Mus Muscogee descended people. And the Muscogee go back to the Mexican. That was something uh, that Ben from an Analog, waking up with Analog, taught me. Uh, the Muscogee ba go back to Mexico. And it's actually the same exact root word. Muscogee, Mux Muxican, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and the, Musca the Muscovites are a group of people in Europe, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so there's a connection yep. back there that still exists exactly. to this day. Exactly. You have Muscovy ducks here in Florida. You have the Mus you have uh Muscogee people. Well the Muscogee, I believe, are related to the Muscovy Muscovites of Russia. That's why you have St. Petersburg, Florida and St. Mm -hmm. Petersburg, Russia. Right. Same, in the bay, right? Gulf to Gulf. You're, you're right. It's the same exact taking the Gulf Stream from its source to its end. Right. Gulf of Gulf of Mexico to essentially the Gulf of Finland, the Baltic Sea. Uh, that's St. Petersburg to St. Petersburg. Wow. There's your there's your ancient Tartarian Empire right there. <laughs> and uh you know, let's look at some more of these guys. Uh that's a Seminole. I don't know how that guy doesn't look very Native American to me. He's got the little deer uh deer skin uh now tass tassels at the bottom but that is a arabic looking person he's got his little dagger there it looks like scarfs his pashmina however they pronounce it right and one one thing you know that i will say as like little objection is you know obviously there were european people here at this time they could have brought all kinds of stuff and traded with the natives. We know they traded with the natives, but when you look at these guys, they have mustaches, which I don't think there's many Native Americans that can grow mm. mustaches. So you have that. Good point. And then also uh, certain facial features also. I mean, this is a odd science to get into because it borders on you know eugenics and anthropology but there are certain like cranial features or you know mm -hmm. facial features of course that, that jaw yeah you can tell you can determine racial origin by right. jaw no the nose bridge the bridge of the nose how high the bridge of the nose is it's a it's a clear determination right for 
what genes you have. And these guys have, not only do they absolutely have North African genes, I see a lot of Indian, what we would call Indian, like from India. And I see what, what we know they are to, uh, descended from largely Celtic people. So believe it or not, the, the official history of the Muskegee, the Seminoles, the Creek, is that they were kind of a conglomerate tribe that was mixed in with uh, white people that were also dissatisfied with colonial America and went and chose the tribal life. That's what we're told. Now, most of them were like Celtic and were hardcore, either Scottish, Irish, Welsh, and they all mixed in with the Seminole. That's why the most famous Seminole, Osceola, well, that's his tribal name. His real name, his birth name, he was Scottish. His real name was Billy Powell. Now, I think we can, we'll get to him later. Is but, this uh, Billy Powell here or? or this we're going to see, we're going to get to him. This isn't exactly organized. I think he's later on. Okay. But, I was going to say, this guy kind of looks like David Bowie if he existed in, in this time period. <laughs> this is a creepy Indian and he's got his either face paint or face tattoos. Well, his, uh, his, po his posture is very glam rock. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what I'm he's, getting. It looks like he's wearing a silk kimono. Yeah. Oh yeah. A silk turban hat type thing. Right. And to go back to the, the blue and the purple, I should say, uh, it looks like you're wearing purple right now. Basically, uh, the Phoenicians, their claim to fame was that not only were they the best, uh, mariners sea, seamen but they were the best uh they had the only source of purple dye allegedly uh, was this precious dye that they would get um well people's what do they what do people do you know what i'm talking about they point to um well there's I this think, whole conversation about how in it's like art, sea urchins right well that i i'm i'm almost certain you're thinking of like uh cretacean blood so certain cretaceous species well that's that's what i'm getting at like is, the crabs and there's exactly blue blood so, and that whole. what i what i'm getting at is that the true source of this of this rich blue and sometimes purple is horseshoe crab blood ah. from the west from the west coast of florida why the no. west coast of Florida? Because we have horseshoe crabs up here in uh, Long Island Sound. I don't know if all horseshoe crabs oh, really? have. Yeah, they're endangered because kids are stupid and run around on the beach and crack their shells open. But yeah, they're they're here. They're for sure here. Okay, so Tyrian dye comes from um, the, sea snails. The sea snail. So they say, yeah, you're right. Huh. They said it was sea snails. Well, that's in the Mediterranean, essentially. Uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, the equivalent to that would have been this blue blood mm. coming from from the uh, horseshoe crab. Horseshoe crabs. Thank right. you. And, and horseshoes have why... an interesting occult lore as well connected to mm -hmm. them. But yeah, there's there's well, a lot of connections to this blue because the blue dye thing. People talk about how in in classic paintings there is no blue dye. 
Like they use like colors like wine red to, to paint the sky because they just didn't have blue. And that leads some people to think that the sky wasn't blue back then. But I mean, I don't know if we could use art to determine what color the sky was, but you know, anyways. Mm -hmm. These guys use a lot of blue yeah. and that is kind that kind of asserts their, their status. These well, people were, were wealthy. Yeah. Um, probably traders at one point. Um, some of these guys, you can see some Asian features, but here we go. Like I was saying, the Creek may actually be Greek because the Greek colonized parts of Florida that is unknown to many people. Uh, New Smyrna, Florida was an old Greek colony, but it goes a lot farther back than people no, it actually goes back to the English period when the English were in control in the 1700s. Wow. So you just, in the last slide you just showed, I noticed that the, the, some of the mounds were mentioned. And in one of my past uh, episodes of Esoteric America, we talked about the Etowah mounds and how they found these copper thunderbirds in the mounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is very curious because a lot of, uh, tribes, you know, we're told didn't have any sort of metallurgy. And, you know, here we go talking about European cultures here in the area, possibly, you know, becoming what we think of as tribes. Obviously they would have carried some of their, you know, bronze age or copper age type, you know, metallurgy with them and been a would have been able to create those copper thunderbirds that they find in the mound. So, wow, mm. that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. There's also the theory or kind of the realization that most of uh, the copper that was getting mined out of the Ohio and Mississippi area, e inland America, uh, is missing from the archaeological record of the Americas. So right. people believe that was being exported yeah, uh, historians have, have always theorized that, that the Phoenicians were getting all their copper from the Americas. Um, they got their tin from Britain, right? Britain, that's where it gets its name. They were getting their tin from there. And, uh, yeah, what else? Uh, well, it's fascinating what, what how we got? can, it's fascinating how we can trace, you know, all of these things using phonetic clues and this is like a type of concept that you know i think you could generally refer to it as uh twilight language i'm looking for my book that i had earlier because oh here it is because sesh harry mentions a similar concept when he's talking about florida and how ed lee scan scanlon's name is twilight language for uh something in particular that kind of gives you a clue and his theory is that ed lee scalhan built this rock gate to sort of fulfill some kind of uh you know rosicrucian or, or secret society purpose and obviously you know if you've been to coral castle you know it's pretty magnificent a little old man couldn't have done it without some kind of powerful knowledge and uh 
yeah, you got to wonder, you know, what sort of forces other than his, you know, lost love compelled him to choose that spot and build that there. Cause the conventional story is just, oh, well, you know, Coral Castle is some sort of old man's project because he lost his love in Lithuania or, or something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, if I could find this page, I'll I'll read what his name uh, means in Twilight language because it's kind of interesting that that came up right before we we got on the call here. I like to follow the synchronicities, if you couldn't tell, uh, mm-hmm. Doctor Longo. So mm-hmm. here we go. Here it is. So Ed means riches, ward, Edward. Riches, ward means guardian or castle. Lee means shelter. Squell means skill or wisdom. And Nin means nine, the nine principles of creation in ancient Egyptian myth. So that's this author's interpretation of Edward Lee Skalnin, who built Coral Castle, uh, using supposedly Egyptian ancient Egyptian knowledge. But if what we're talking about here tracks, I think, you know, what we call Egyptian might as well be called Atlantean and what we call Florida might as well be called New Atlantis, because that seems to be what these, you know, colonists were trying to do when they came here. I mean, in New England, they tried to do a bunch of these utopian socialist sort of colonies that ended up failing ultimately luckily for them they were absorbed by the united states and all the plans that came from you know the deists and the freemasons but you know this is like i don't know maybe we're going off on a a limb here but this is sort of like where this topic becomes really interesting because the people who founded our country had knowledge of the mounds they had knowledge of these ancient sort of legends. And then they created organizations like the Smithsonian Institute, which went about giving folks a mainstream narrative that discounted a lot of these, uh, what became fringe aspects of what's here in America. So uh, I think I just took us off on a, a sort of tangent there, but do you have any comments on, on that? Anything to add? So Frank Hamilton Cushing, mm. who did work for the Smithsonian, right, came here over a hundred years ago, um, pretty much a hundred and twenty years ago, over, and he was pretty much the first, you could say, American or European, uh, European American authority to go out and look at these Florida mounds. So when he was out in Southwest Florida, uh, between Tampa Bay area and basically the keys, Marco Island, the Marco Island artifacts are artifacts that have, you were just talking about the Egyptians. They have a dog, a jackal dog. It's definitely an Egyptian type dog and an Anubis, pretty much Anubis a jackal, a cat, a domesticated cat, and a, what was the third one? Well, they have all these masks, all these very weird Pacific-looking masks. And uh, Frank Hamilton Cushing found those 
or he was one of the first people to um, examine him, put together some of the pieces. And he also was, like I said, the first person to go through these mounds. Well, he said flat out, this is a civilization that like rivaled, you know, the Egyptians. They had mound cities, solid limestone clumped up, clumped up shell mounds. We call them mound staying trash piles, but that's not what they were. You don't arrange your trash to the stars, right? Right. So all these mounds are arranged to the stars. Right. And I'll show you, I'll show you some of that. Well, and while um, you're, while you're pulling that up, I'll say a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of talk goes on about the Hopewell and Adena cultures and their mound building in between the Mississippi and the Appalachians. But we have shell middens all along the East coast from Maine down to Florida. And as you just mentioned, these are not just like happen happenstance trash piles that just came out of, for no reason. They're meticulously planned, you know, constructions with a purpose, you know. And yeah, it's it's fascinating and telling, very telling, when you learn that these are, for the most part, ignored even by some alternative people like you know Graham Hancock and and those guys. You know, they don't look at any of this kind of stuff. Maybe. I mean, I'm here. I'm here, guys. If you want your proof of Atlantis, I can show it to you. (laughs) Yeah. Shout Um, out to Graham. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, so just to sum things up, why are we talking about Florida, Atlantis, Muslims, all this, you know, how does this all cross, you know, how does this all intersect? Basically, Atlantis is very likely the source of the Egyptian culture the Greek culture, the Maya, the Aztec. And if not the origin of those cultures, it definitely shaped them tremendously when the survivors or the 12 tribes of this or that, uh, the survivors of Atlantis would basically reestablish in contact with these tropical kingdoms, as they're called in the Bach saga, the tropical kingdoms. And, uh, you know, these anchors, the implications of these anchors are huge. Well, that's because in the Mediterranean, the average stone anchor in Polynesia, the average stone anchor is about 300 pounds. And it's about the size of a backpack. Here in Florida, we have the oldest and the largest stone anchors in the world. They're at least 7,000 years old, and they're about 5,000 pounds plus on average. 10,000, many examples, 10,000 pound anchors. So the size of a ship that's going to need that big, remember those uh, those backpack-sized ones that they pull up in the Mediterranean all the time. Uh, if, you look, if you go look up ancient stone anchor, you, you can see what I'm talking about anyone that's listening ancient stone anchor is a real thing they just don't admit that they are here in florida they don't even acknowledge them john saxer had a moderate success in like the 2000s early 2000s late 90s getting people to come experts getting getting them to come look at them and they did agree with him but then it was all hush hush 
Nothing got written. Nothing. It was in Ancient American Magazine. Uh, if you if you know Ancient American Magazine, uh, it was in at least one one uh, one publication mm. of uh, Ancient Alien. Sorry, Ancient American. Yeah, no, I think we've had, uh, I don't know how closely associated Rick Osman is with that publication. I think he works with them as a writer. We've had him on the show before, and he talks about similar subjects, something we brought up in our last conversation, which can be found on your channel, right? The Coquina, or actually, was it Juan's channel? I think it was for Juan's channel. Uh, either way, I'll put the link That's... in the description. Um, but we mentioned that saga that sort of concept that sort of uh particular area mm -hmm. so you know atlantis ties into ties into um phoenicia because phoenicians are these sea people who came from somewhere else and colonized the mediterranean it's obvious because they just hugged the interior of the Mediterranean. Um, they had no t territory to establish this this empire from um, until they had seized that land. Maybe they were natives. Who knows? The Phoenicians were not African in the sense that we would think. These people largely had European DNA because they were descended from Finnish Vikings. So Finnish Vikings came from the north, south to North Africa and Lebanon, Israel, Cyprus, and established colonies. And once we're in the Mediterranean, we call them Phoenicians. Well, it's the same culture. If you look at their language, it's obvious. The runes, there's rune stones that are all over the world. And then there's Phoenician steles, stellas however they pronounce it, stills. And um, I can show you some of those, actually. Yeah, tell me about these. What, what is, for people who don't know, what's a stell? It's basically a stone that has an, a runic inscription on it. Okay. And Phoenician is pretty much identical to runic. That's why, like I said earlier, Phoenician, when it was being used in North Africa, was called Punic. That's why when the Romans were fighting the Phoenicians in North Africa, it was the Punic Wars. Right. Well, the Romans were also fighting who? The barbarians in the north, the Vikings, right? Right. Right. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about all these, you know, so-called pirates who, you know, ravaged the, the Caribbean, the colonial, you know, days, and even in the colonies, too. And, you know, some of these were barbarian pirates. And it's like, well, you know, do you think the pirates just followed Columbus and everybody over here? Or were they already here? You know, maybe they had ships here already. And they were Native American folks mm -hmm. who were, you know. Well, pirates, pirate culture is mm -hmm. a direct continuation of Phoenician culture. Wow. These people who stuck to their ships. Right. They, they traded. They were accused of looting. And they might not have always been looting in the sense that we think and just robbing people and being up to no good. As we know, priv uh, privateers is just a nice name for a pirate. 
So the pirates were being employed by governments. Right, like a mercenary uh, in a way. Mercenaries, exactly. Well, and even today yeah. with yachts and such, I mean, I'm sure you're well aware being in Florida here in Connecticut, we have definitely a yacht culture that you know exists probably because of New York City. But, you know, yachts kind of drift along this boundary, boundary of legal, you know, gray area because, you know, as soon as they leave port, they're, you know, lawless, so to speak. And I think there's plenty of uh, wealthy people who would like to take advantage of that loophole. And some people argue that there are whole groups of people who live on solely ships and they're like breakaway civilizations. So if those mm -hmm. exist today, you know, here an example would be like the whole Ghislaine Maxwell terra, terra firma thing, or maybe I'm not getting the name of that right, but she had some sort of group that was interested in uh, creating like an ocean civilization that was not, you know, bound by any one body of land. So it's very strange how the, these things, you know, repeat themselves throughout history. But here's a, a Finnish runestone. Now, where was this found? In Finland. This is runic. Okay. This is Phoenician. This is a Phoenician stell or steel, Stella. I, I don't know. People pronounce it differently. Uh, basically, this is a runestone. They just won't call it a, a runestone. Mm. And the academics or the sacademics, as I like to call them, they will go, they will jump through any hoop they need to in order to obscure the truth. Right. For example, Phoenician. Well, if you asked someone to spell that offhand, they would probably start with an S, right? Phoenician. And they probably wouldn't put an O as the first vowel either. Right. Well, what you have here is an example of phonetic um, ob obscuring, where they're obscuring the phonetic identity of both of these words well when i think the, of foe i mean it sounds also like the word fake which is sort of kind of implied that they're faking something phony they call yeah. them the phoenicians <laughs> either faking the truth yeah phony for sure yeah that that definitely has a uh, you know has has a meaning in this too but that is finnish f-i-n finnish well, it seems like they're jumping through hoops to not spell Phoenician with an F and an I, because then it would be so obvious that right. these are the same culture. Right. So they spell it P-H-O-E-N, Phoenician. It's interesting that this uh, also in this style that you're showing us here, there's a sort of a spiral uh, pattern that the characters follow. No, the one that you just had. If you notice, like it's it's sort of squared, but it you know it starts down at the bottom right corner there, and then it goes up like a spiral and comes into itself. And I wonder uh, if there's a way, because you know different languages start their uh, reading from different angles, right? Japanese people read from mm -hmm. right to left. We in the Western world, for the most part, read from left to right, and. French people's books titles are upside down, you know, like there's all kinds of little clues with uh, the the way you structure language. I wonder if there's something to that. Uh, I have a, a quick image I'd like to share real quick just to show you 
that maybe there's an example of this up here in New England as well. Um, this is the Dighton Rock, which is was found in a riverbed in Massachusetts, and the people who went to study it, they you know didn't think that it was Native American, but considering everything we're talking about here today, it could be a sort of amalgamation of Rune and maybe other characters, and that's why it doesn't fit into you know, any of the traditional, what we would think of as Native American uh, symbols or language characters. But mm-hmm. yeah, this is uh, the one relief of this, I think on the other side, or maybe it's just not clear here, but it looks like there's a sword, like a broad sword that's depicted on this rock somewhere. So that's where people think maybe it has something to do with Vikings and their iron swords or, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is ample evidence of this. Even you know, there's site in Connecticut that my aunt used to live right on the side of this mountain, uh, where they found Hebrew inscriptions at the top of the rock. And obviously, the you know, would you call them sacademics? They love to you know write everything off as a hoax if it doesn't fit into their mm-hmm. narrative. So they called this you know Hebrew inscription a hoax, but. It exists mm-hmm. in a place where, you know, you have several mountain peaks over a very deep old lake. Uh, it's, uh, what's it, what am I thinking? Which lake? How am I forgetting the name? Lake Waramog. Thank you, Tara. Uh, lake Waramog in Connecticut, for people that don't know uh, this area, there's a very old lake. And the legend is that when, you know, European settlers came into this area, the native chief who ran shop in this area had a longhouse that was the most exquisite piece of architecture that, you know, these European colonists had ever seen. They were invited in and they were showing all this artwork. It was, you know, the dimensions were like 15 by 25 feet. And, you know, uh, this is a very, they called it like a stately sort of, which was a high compliment for, you know, considering that they considered most of these Indian structures just like stick huts, they uh, held mm-hmm. this one in high regard. So yeah, there's so much evidence of a more advanced culture here in America throughout at least the Eastern seaboard. Uh, that's where we're focusing here today. But um, yeah, man, I I really like the number of videos I, I, I saw. I haven't watched them all, but you know, if you were to, you know, present another example of why you think Florida is Atlantis, is there anywhere we haven't covered so far? I mean, we've talked about the stone anchors. We've talked about, um, oh, I, I can think of one, the Garden of Eden and then Bach Tower. This is kind of pertinent to me because I found a postcard last year of the Bach Tower right after learning about the Bach Saga. And I sort of thought, oh, maybe there's a connection here. Not so much. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on on that? I mean, at least historically, there's no like direct lineage between anyone in the Bach you know, family and the Bach Tower, but it is odd that they, they have the same name. Mm-hmm. I think all Bachs are descended from the same house, mm. the family, group of families. So your Bachs with the B-A-C-H, like uh, Sebastian Bach, you know, composer. Wow, um, yeah. Basically, 
that's the same family. He had uh, royal blood. He was of the nobility. And this Bach BOK in Florida, the Bach Tower, that guy, I believe, is Danish or Dutch. He's Dutch. He's Dutch. So he's Dutch. Well, Bach, the other Bach is um, Eeyore Bach from the Bach Saga. He's from Finland. Well, as I already established the connection between Finland and Florida, because the Finnish, the Finns established a colony here in Lake Worth, Florida, because they were following the Gulf Stream back to what I would say is their, their roots, this ancient tradition of crossing the Atlantic. And uh, the Garden of Eden, you know, you say Atlantis. How does Atlantis tie into the Garden of Eden? That's because the Garden of Eden is a direct ripoff of the Greek myth, the Garden of Hesperides. The word paradise comes directly from Hesperides. Hesperides became paradise, paradise, paradies. And so the Garden of the Hesperides became the Garden of Paradise. And they had a tree with a snake on it with a golden apple. Well, that was an orange. Um, the word orange in Greek, Finnish, Russian, Jewish, um, Hebrew, what, you know, whatever types of Hebrew they speak. Uh, and I already said Finnish. Latin as well. Orange means golden apple. The golden apple of mythology is the orange. They established this for sure. It's only in uh, Western Europe, kind of, where it really took hold that it was a apple, a red apple. And I'm not sure why that is, but probably to obscure the fact that this was a Greek myth. And the Greeks, the Greeks did have, uh, did, did have apples, but to indicate it as an orange would have shown that it might have stemmed from an Atlantean origin, the Phoenicians, because the Phoenicians introduced citrus to all these other cultures as well. Right. And that's so strange considering that, you know, Disney, which is so famous and has made such an impact on, you know, American culture in the last hundred years, they find themselves in the two places in the United States that are most famous for their oranges, right? You have the mm -hmm. orange groves out in California and you have the very famous Florida oranges. So Orange Orange County. Right. Or or Lando mm. is in Orange County. And there's Florida. even the House of Orange, which made kind of an impact. I mean, I live not too far mm -hmm. from a town called Orange, Connecticut, and there's plenty of places all over the country named Orange. It's just a very common town name. Uh and I wonder if mm -hmm. that connects to the maybe the royal name or possibly this uh myth that we're in the new atlantis because you see this over and over again with the toponyms across you know especially the east coast where you have like you know, maybe biblical names inserted or other uh sort of old world names uh speaking of names what's their name this is uh arion arion hello cat <laughs> welcome mm. to the podcast Welcome to the podcast cast. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
the pong. pong <laughs> there test. you go. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, what were you saying? Sorry. That's all right. Yeah. We got caught up on cats. That's fine. I kind of lost track with what I was. Well, we could talk about cats. The, the, the Marco Island mm. artifact shows what I believe to be domesticated cats. Right. You said it, uh, it was a jackal type dog, a cat, and one other one. Do you remember now what that other one was? Could it have been like a, a Osirian kind of hawk oh, it, or yes. a falcon? It was an ibis. Ah, uh, it, was, it, it was a wading bird. Both. Exactly. So these are all like Egyptian deities that right. cross over to Florida. Wow. And this is, you know, the Nile is the Mississippi. The, the Nile and the Mississippi if the Mississippi is not the original Nile, then it's definitely the equivalent and has an equivalent amount of history, equivalent. Um, and when you look at the commonalities, you have alligators and crocodiles, right? You have uh, citrus growing in, in both areas, pretty much. You have... Uh, or was I going to say? Well, we were just talking uh, about waiting, waiting birds, yes. the waiting birds. And you Flamingos. say, um, as you pointed out uh, earlier, there's many uh, ecological similarities and even like uh, ge geological similarities between Florida and Egypt mm. uh, and, the, and the Yucatan of Mexico. But basically this breadbasket, the Gulf of Mexico, we believe is the true fertile crescent. It is exactly cr crescent shaped and it is very fertile. And there's an abundance of, of fresh water, spring water. Now to tie it back to the garden of Eden, what would I look for in the garden of Eden? I'd look for subtropical weather, not too hot where you're uh, getting roasted all day. I'd look for an abundance of tropical fruit. I'd look for a bunch of spring water, fresh, freshest, cleanest, healthiest spring water in the world and the most in the world here in Florida. I would look for maybe giant skeletons. Well, you have a lot of those here in Florida. I would look for um, things like that. What makes you and say you, that last part? Because that's something that you don't just walk across, you know, your average uh, forest and stumble upon a giant skeleton. Uh, that's an indication of very ancient civilizations, I imagine. Is that what you're suggesting or just? Yeah. Let me, here, I'm going to pull up a sled. Because, you know, we have legends from the Native Americans of giants being, you know, not so friendly. So, I, I mean, for me, if I found giant skeletons, I might. Check that place off on the list is not a good, suitable, <laughs> safe place. But I don't know. It depends on how friendly the giants are. As you've pointed out numerous times uh, in other shows, I am maybe a giant myself. So I don't know what that says about me. But uh, Well, yeah, you got the blood. You got the <laughs> Nephilim blood. Oh, God, don't say that. A lot of my audience is afraid of Nephilim. So <laughs> No, it's nothing bad. Nephilim's not... It has a bad interpretation for sure. Right. If you're, if you're right. going according to that interpretation of the fallen angel, you know, mm -hmm. being actual evil entities. But mm -hmm. once you realize that it probably has a lot to do with Atlantis as well, um, you had mixing of 
races, um, some of the earliest mixing of races. Um, and in Europe today, we see white. Well, that's not actually the purest white. And we go to Africa and we see black. Well, that's not actually the purest black. And you see it in some instances. But when these ancient, ancient, unmixed races mixed, you might have had the potential for absurdly large offspring. Because that happens with dog breeding very often. Is when humans are being, or sorry, when species are being intentionally bred, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And at some point, you actually mate the two smallest things in you might. I might be thinking of plants, of plants that they definitely do that with certain plant species where you have the smallest two, uh, smallest two offspring mate with each other, and you can actually get the largest as a result. Wow. Well, you look for giants and what are perhaps gnomes or elves, people, you know, kind of roll their eyes when they hear that stuff, but very short people were common in the ancient world. Now, you were talking about Ed Lead, Ed Lead Scalman. Well, he may have some of this gnome blood or this elvish or this uh, fairy blood, you know, these little people that were workers of of the earth maybe stone stuff like that well what if i told you did you know that juan ponce de leon was under five feet tall really well they always make fun of napoleon for allegedly being short when in actuality he, short, he was yeah. very he was actually uh, pretty tall compared to most people but so ponce de leon was i mean eh, that that doesn't work Four foot eleven. I mean, there's a lot of uh, that, that that tracks with. That's like <laughs> that's like Snooky, Snooky wow. height. Yeah, but I but, mean, uh, that's not that well, unusual. What we're looking at right now is giants, giant skeletons being found in Florida in old uh, Florida newspapers. And yeah, I've got more than this. If you look at my Instagram, I've got a lot more than this. They're just not all on my laptop. Right. Um, what else we got? And those giant anchors would have needed giants to use them. Or people with advanced technology, of course, that's a possibility too. Mm -hmm. But Eden and Atlantis. Well, you got lots of snakes here. Right, I should have said that too. Um, and the Fertile Crescent, the cradle of civilization... They make all these excuses how the Fertile Crescent is not fertile anymore, how the rivers are diverted, it's not irrigated the way it was in ancient times. And, well, Florida and the Gulf of Mexico is very fertile. Very, very fertile. You can grow just about anything in Florida. The weather is very temperate. Uh, a video that I'm going to be doing that you have exclusive information on a uh, new conspiracy. It's the biggest conspiracy in the world, actually. Florida is not hot. Really? Florida is not, is not hot. It's humid. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Florida is not hot. And if you ask anyone in America, 
can you list off some of the hottest cities? They would say, probably say Miami, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty high on that list. Well, what if I told you that it has only once ever gone over 100 degrees in Miami? Wow. And that was in the 1940s. Why is that? It does get hot here. It does get humid. But it, it will always average out in the mid-90s, even on the hottest days. And on average, in the mid-80s, mid-70s. Whereas in all of the, the states that receive very, very cold winters, all of them will go well over 100 degrees every year, year after year. And we're not, people don't talk about that. They just kind of accept it. Yeah. Well, you know, Nebraska will go to 110 degrees. Right. Very often. Ohio, New Hampshire even, well into the hundreds, right? And sometimes they'll go 20 below zero, even more, some of these states. That's a span of what, over 100 degrees, essentially. That's not very good for the human body. This is not like an ice bath, right? It's good to take an ice bath every once in a while. But on on the grand scale, that is terrible for the human body. And living in a temperate zone where the temperature swing, the variation, is only about 30 degrees, that is very good for the body. That is very good for the organs. It's good for the skin. It's good for everything. Being too, too deep in the tropics brings many problems. Um, too much heat, too much sun exposure. You, you know, rainforests are nice, are nice, but you cannot just sustain yourself like a civilized person out in one unless you're willing to rever- revert back to tribal, uh, you know, attitudes towards things, which is okay. But um, what was I talking about? You're talking about how, you know, Florida would have been a desirable place because it doesn't fluctuate. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, the further you go into the, which you can't really go. I mean, even the keys are probably within that range of of really nice weather. Uh, I don't imagine Florida has any like crazy jungles uh, that would, I mean, the Everglades are certainly wild, but. So the peninsula is so skinny, Florida itself, with water on either side, ocean water, and so much abundant fresh water oozing up from its springs that it is impossible pretty much for it to stay over 100 degrees. The air moves so easily across the state that hot air can never just rest over the state, whereas Nebraska, Idaho... Um, these type of states where it's just like barren, uh, you know, wheat fields and cornfields and stuff, right. you're just getting baked by summer sun. Florida actually gets less, um, less heat in the summer and less cool, less cold in the winter. So that's well. It, it, there's an argument you know, to be made that you know. You can look at the United States from west to east, sort of like a gradient of desertification, where like what we're looking at in the mm-hmm. what are the plain states is like you know the signs of you know inevitable desert, right? So I mean, 
That's kind of a scary thought, but I have been told by one past guest, and I've heard this on other interviews, certain people talk about how at one point a squirrel could have gone from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States without ever touching the ground. There are so many trees here. And, wow. you know, this is a big topic in the whole Great Reset thing is that there are these great cataclysms. I mean, up here in New England, we've had several cataclysmic hurricanes that destroyed a lot of the old, you know, historic trees. The Charter Oak was one that has like a sort of important legacy connected to the United States uh, Constitution. Uh, so, you know, there's definitely an argument to be made that we're living in sort of like a, a barren, <laughs> changing, vastly changing landscape. I, I don't know if I, I'm down with the climate change people, but I certainly agree that, you know, something's going on with these wild storms. Agreed. Storms, I mean, you could talk about storms from so many angles. Mm. But one that's important is the giant trees that used to be in Florida. That Those acted as a natural break wind right. for pretty much the eastern United States. These bald cypress trees that were giant, in some cases as big as redwoods and sequoias, but often twice as old. Wow. So, um, yeah, they average to be older than redwoods and sequoias. Right. But those would deflect or neutralize hurricanes as they hit the coast of Florida, um, as they entered the Gulf of Mexico or tried to. Well, without those ancient giant trees, and I'm going to show you some of those giant trees in a sec. Now, but we, well, one thing I, I just want to ask, because I've noticed this during storms and at certain weird places that Tara and I have visited, there are large trees that seem to be very old where it looks like people either had a sort of effort to place these rocks in the roots so that it would be like an anchor to hold down the tree. And it makes sense that you might want to do that if you're living in an area with a lot of storms. But do you think that these like cypress trees that were all over old world Florida uh, were a part of that Atlantean civilization, like a natural break wall that maybe were destroyed as as the colonists sort of mm -hmm. set in and ignorantly thrashed things around? Well, if you think about Cyprus, Cyprus gets its name from Cyprus, the Phoenician colony mm -hmm. in, the, in the island in the Mediterranean. Wow. Um, so Cyprus with a U, Cyprus, uh, the cypress tree was the sacred holy tree to the Phoenicians, the Greek, um, the Turks, and you have turkeys in Florida, right? Lots of turkeys. Uh, Turkey got its name from Turkey, and allegedly we're told that they saw this bird. They, they thought that it was exotic, and they named it a turkey, right? That's what we're told. But... We're talking about the Garden of Eden, and I wanted to show this article. It's in a land advertisement from 1911 that is advertising the Tarpon Springs area as the original Garden of Eden. And this guy's angle, how he arrived at that um, belief, was 
looking at the temperatures, that it's the most equable climate in the United States, as I was just talking about. Well, Florida climate proves that original Garden of Eden was located there. Original Garden of Eden, I have underlined right there. Mr. And, Edmonds. Who's this guy? Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is just uh, some guy who wrote an article, but he got very impassioned once he got into this. It became like a religious zeal. He, I don't know how religious he was before, but just by looking at the temperatures, he was like, my God, how can, how can a, a place be so uh, natural to live in? You could pretty much live naked in the Tampa Bay area very, very comfortably. Mm. It's not going to get as hot as some of the other southern southern parts of Florida. It can, but it's much more temperate, and it has a little more elevation. Uh, Miami has no elevation, but still, remember, only went over 100 degrees one time in the 1940s. That's a conspiracy. That's propaganda in my mind. They want people thinking... Miami's Florida is just this hot, barren, you know, and it's hot, it's humid, you know, you'll sweat for sure, but let's see what else we've got. So that was just going off the temperature and the climate. Someone came to the realization this might be the the real Garden of Eden. Now, back before the 1900s, they were writing in newspapers all the time about how there were these ancient civilizations buried in in Florida, mound builders, right? Hopewell culture, Mississippi mound building culture, Ohio River Valley culture. These are all like Egyptian scale empires, civilizations. The Maya or who we call the Maya extended into Florida without a doubt. That's Miami. But, um, here we have the Garden of Eden being being uh, asserted that Florida is the Garden of Eden by a man named E.E. E. Calloway. And E.E. E. Calloway, he looked at the Bible's description of Eden, and he felt that it was describing uh, the area of Bristol, Florida. And the main crux of his theory is what's called gopher wood or kofir wood. In the Old Testament, Noah's Ark was made from kofir wood. Well, here in uh, northwestern Florida, you have gopher wood. So phonetically, that's the same word, and he knew this. Mm. Now, and yeah. Well, I, if you're about to get to this, maybe uh, the rivers that you're showing us here uh, they have two names on either side. I'm imagining that one of them is the biblical comparison and the other is what they call it, uh, you know, in the present location. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have the Euphrates, the Ginal River, the uh, Mid- Midekel, Midexel River, and the, the Pison River. Those are all the biblical names for these yeah. river, rivers. Wow. The Heide, Heidekel. Heidekel, the, oh, okay. The, the Pison, the Heidekel, the Euphrates, and the, the, the Ginon. Right, wow. Ginon. Okay. And she believes this is the only four-headed river system in the world. 
that he could find on a map where you have a four-headed natural river system. That dam was put in there, but that's a natural four-headed river system. Now, before the dam was there, it would have been probably like a floodplain and not like a single river. It would have maybe been a larger river or, or even maybe like multiple rivers coming out of that. I don't know. Huh. Um, I, I can't speak to that, but this is E.E. Calloway right here. Okay. And these are the signs. The government actually got on board with a lot of his theories. The, the, the state government and local government uh, of Bristol, Florida, which is uh, just west of Tallahassee, I believe, along the banks of the Apalachicola River. Mm. Well, the Apalachicola River has the same route as the Appalachian Mountains and the Appalachian culture, right? Well, what if I told you that is the apple of Eden? And this is the river of Eden, the Appalachicola. Wow. And so the government got on board and started putting those signs up. Um, but I wanted to read this too. This is from Hilton Hotema. This man, he's a breatharian. He is a occultist mystic. And he wrote many publications, many, uh, I don't know what you call them, blogs, I guess. Uh, books, many, many books. They were composed, compiled into books, his writings. Um, they're hard to get, but Hilton Hotema is worth a search if you guys are looking for some interesting stuff especially about breatharianism, uh, vegetarianism, fruitarianism. Uh, as you can see there, basically, the steps go to going towards breatharian. And he believed in order to be breatharian, you needed a climate which would allow you to do so, or even to just be healthy. So that's what I was talking about before, about the temperate zones, uh, where the climate does not fluctuate so, so drastically. Right. Is per is best for the human, but to live in naturally, mm. without without artificial pampering and artificial aid, uh, stuff like that. So he wrote this, or at least he published this about Florida. Empire of the Sun. Why is Florida destined to rise to greater heights of any other state of this nation? because she has the same isothermal zone as did ancient Thebes and Luxor when they flourished in the valley of the mystic Nile, the same as that of Babylonia the Magnificent with her hanging gardens on the banks of the Euphrates when she ruled a continent, the same as that of Jerusalem, the holy city of Palestine, with its fabulous wealth and templed shrines when Solomon reigned in all his glory. The same as that of Athens, when she was the intellectual capital of the world and crowned with architectural splendor the hills of classic Greece. The same as that of Carthage, when she disputed the sovereignty of the world with imperial Rome. The same as that of Naples. And I think it goes on to the other page. But, uh, so, that's a compelling argument. Right. And uh, especially in our modern uh situation political situation florida is a bright beacon of reason a beacon of truth uh, freedom 
standing up to the tyranny. I'm very proud to be Floridian in these times. Um, I love our governor. Boo-hoo if you don't like him. But uh, I love what he stands for. And I think that Florida is doing its best to live up to these type of expectations. Um, if you have a perfect climate like this, where you can pretty much get whatever you want done, you should be taking advantage of that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it definitely feels like it's been a sought after place and it has held a special place in American history. I mean, some of the oldest continuous cities or contiguous cities are in Florida, uh, going mm -hmm. back all the way to the early 1500s. So yeah, I mean, we, we only mentioned uh, Ponce de Leon very briefly and him being very short, uh, but he's very well known for the whole Fountain of Youth thing. And some people, you know, say that, oh, okay, it's in St. Augustine or it's somewhere near there. I know you've done a video on St. Augustine. Is there a particular, like, location or do you think they were just describing the general uh, area of Florida for its aquifers, just in general, the whole area has that quality to it? Or, or is it, you know, punctuated with like a really precise spot where you get the full effect? Like, do you think that place actually exists or is it just mythology? Yeah, there's definitely, um, there's definitely like allegorical, you know, symbolic transcendental interpretations where, you know, there doesn't have to be a physical fountain. Sure. There's processes in the human body that people would refer to as the fountain of youth, right? The elixir of life. And that's okay. That all of that remains true. All of that holds true. Just because Shakespeare wrote about King Henry does not mean that King Henry did not exist. Right? So people need to understand that a allegory does not negate the literal interpretation. So, but if we're looking for a literal interpretation, I can say confidently, Florida is the only landmass that fits that bill of a land of infinite flowing spring water, such abundant spring water that, you know, Nestle, Coca-Cola, all of these companies have gone in and have sucked out millions of gallons a day. And that's sad, you know, and that should be, uh, have an end put to it, but it doesn't even scratch, doesn't even make it dent uh, pretty much. Each of these springs pumps out thousands of gallons every, you know, every couple hours, uh, some of them a million gallons a day. It's, it's absurd. Wow. Uh, so Ginny Springs, you have all these springs, but to answer your question, is it a, one specific spring? I have a good idea of one that I think might've been significant to Juan Ponce de Leon, because in a picture, he's pictured along one that has a kind of a rock wall. And there's only one that I know of that I've seen, and I've seen a large majority of the ones in Florida, not in person, but, uh, through like compiling them for, for the videos and I can show you which ones I'm talking about. I'm going to share my screen right now. Right. 
You see me? Mm-hmm. Okay, where is that? Your very lovely um, Apple desktop background. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so these are just Florida Springs in general. Wow. Now, most people have never seen or heard of these, especially if they don't live in Florida. People's image of Florida is just like mucky swampland, right? Sawgrass and swamp. Well, pretty much the whole inland of central northern Florida and the Panhandle is littered with the most abundant springs in the world. Wow. Okay. This is where the manatees are living. Highest concentration of freshwater springs in the world. All these little rivers are real-life lazy rivers that flow, like, very, very slow. Uh, perfect for canoeing. This is paradise. And this you is could what just I would... pour your, you could just put a cup in there and drink out of it, or would people in, maybe sterilize most, it first? In most instances, yes. No. Wow. They would, they would probably advise against that. Right. Of course they would. <laughs> but, They'd have um, us putting... Uh, Clorox in it if they if they really wanted to. So all these pictures have not been altered. That is the true color of Florida spring water. Why? Because it has traces of lime in it. Wow. So lime, not squeezed lime. We're right. saying limestone. Fra- fragments of limestone. Right. Pretty much like uh, quartz crystal dust. Wow. And this crystal dust catches sunlight and it glows turquoise teal blue it's amazing absolutely yeah i mean these pictures definitely look like larger than life i've only been to florida as a kid so you know never seen any of this in person it definitely makes me want to get down there uh and and see for myself but Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, we have some very clean, clear water here in Connecticut. You know, like a lot of our streams are, you know, you could see the bottom of them, which is cool. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, most people would probably boil the water before they drank it just, just because. I think you need to take some time to get used to naturally occurring fresh spring water. There might be some pathogens. <laughs> right. um, but that's what our immune system is for (laughs) exactly we should we should be we should be at the point where we can drink from fresh spring water and if it gets you sick you're probably just adjusting you're not dying well and what's so fascinating about the quartz aspect to it is like you know there's a kind of occult knowledge of using crystals in water and kind of like you know charging your water but you really could not, you know, mimic these effects of like millions and millions of pounds of, of quartz, you know, being filtered through this water and, and into dust. I mean, it must have a really profound effect on your health considering we have a very uh, mineral component to our own bodies. I mean, our body could, could take minerals from our food and create bone you know so obviously if we're drinking water with quartz in it that's going to have a beneficial effect on our bone structure right i mean if you have quartz it's the hardest on the Mas scale of hardness and now you're you're integrating that into your anatomy i mean that that's the making of a giant if you ask me yeah it's not it's not exactly quartz 
It's mm. the same minerals that compose right. compose quartz and limestone. Calcite and aragonite. Aragonite. I could okay. be okay. Very cool. Aragonite, organite. I could be wrong. Yeah. I've heard of those. I mean, maybe they're those are the ones, but that also, you know, going back to something we talked about previously, uh, if you have this water that's rich in uh, you know, this lime quality, I imagine that makes your geopolymer work even better, right? If you're using this mm -hmm. water to make sure. this coquina it's... geopolymer stuff, huh? I mean, that's mm -hmm. something we haven't really touched on here, but a big part of this theory is maybe that these stone structures they were building were geopolymers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to go search one of those up, but right here on the right, you see this kind of rock wall with mm. the spring oozing out of it. Well, back in there is a cave. There's a painting, a etching, I'm not sure, of Juan Ponce de Leon being led up to pretty much this exact area. Wow. And you would only be able to know that if you've been there and seen it. Uh, but it's one of the only instances where you have a wall, a cave, and the spring is oozing out of that cave. And there's a picture of Juan Ponce de Leon going up to that. Not a picture, sorry, a painting. Mm. But this is what it is. So this might, I'm not saying this is the fountain of youth, but it's beautiful. This is Kelly Park of Rock Springs in Apopka, Florida. I've been here a couple times. Um, but basically, sorry, what was the last thing? Okay, the the uh, kakina, the right. geopolymer. Right. Um, owns de Leon Hotel in St. Augustine. And actually, most of St. Augustine is made out of this very unique uh, kakina. Sorry, what's it called? Cast kakina or kakina mix. Now where, that's the that's the white sort of facade we're seeing along like the buildings made of not the red roof. It's it's the no. White so the material. red the red is actually something similar. It's okay. terra terracotta. Okay. Or a type of terracotta, um, which is clay. Which is right? exactly is kind of yeah like uh, sculpted brick essentially similar uh, to brick. Um. The red might have indicate a large amount of iron in that in that mix, um, but the gray with the white, the bare wall that you're seeing, all of that uh, terracotta is just like trim tiles, trim um, embellishments. Underneath it is a solid monolithic. This is one of the only monolithic buildings in the world. So this entire building is a monolith, meaning it's essentially a single pour of concrete. Wow. But this is not just any normal concrete. It has crushed up shell mixed into it. Lime, limestone. Limestone just means crushed up shell. Crushed up shell. Shell is just essentially kind of like little dirty crystals being clumped up together to make a shell. Well, then the shell gets crushed up and clumped together to make limestone. 
uh, with lots of other bits and pieces. When you, when you crush that up and cast it on purpose with a cemented concrete mix and something like boric acid, um, you get this extremely strong, like phenomenal type of concrete cement. It's, it, when you cast it, it's, you're essentially casting limestone. Someone that knows how to make this can cast something as far as bedrock. And that building that, that we're looking at right here at the Ponce de Leon Hotel today still stands. It was built allegedly, allegedly built 1887, and it's still standing today. It looks brand new, brand new. It's extraordinary. And this is a solid stone building. Wow. Like that is a, a solid monolithic building. Now, have you been to the site uh, and visited it? Yes, I've been there. Wow. I've been there a couple times. Does it, does it have, because we've talked to folks on this show who have been to megalithic sites before, uh, Freddie Silva, David Elkington, just to name a few. There's definitely more. And uh, Howdy Mikowski, even, who's going to be on the show very soon again. Um, they talk about this feeling that you have when you're in the megalithic structure and they take, they took this hotel and made it into a college, right? So, uh, very interesting that transition. What does it feel like there at the Flagler college? So all of St. Augustine feels great to me. It, it gives you such a good vibe. That's my opinion. Um, because I'm saying it's my opinion because uh, St. Augustine is regarded as one of the most haunted cities in the world. Wow. Well, that's kind of what you'd expect considering it's the oldest American city. So that might just come with the territory. But when you take into consideration like the Bermuda Triangle, Atlantis, all of these old myths, legends, uh, they're essentially ghost stories. And that's all kind of getting... The epicenter of that is St. Augustine, where all these old monolithic buildings and stuff are uh, haunted, essentially. They have like a higher rate of haunting, and that might be due to the material that the whole city is made out of. Because right. this Kakina rock is extra conductive. Even normal concrete is conductive to a little degree. Um, or grounding, if you're into grounding, walking barefoot, concrete is actually better than wood, believe it or not. Because um, it transmits more electricity. Mm. Not always, not all types of wood. But um, it's better than asphalt, that's for sure. And if you take that into consideration with the fact that they're mixing large amounts of shell and what you could maybe call crystal into this mix, well, it has a larger potential for spiritual, uh, mystical residues, you know, uh, phantom residues, if you're into that type of stuff. It's not definitely my, my expertise, ghost, ghost things or anything like that, but it's a huge part of St. Augustine, uh, 
if you ever go there, it's like ghost tours, ghost tours. Everyone's taking a ghost tour, you know? Yeah, no, it's certainly a point of fascination for me as it pertains to the topic of high strangeness and how, you know, certain areas generate this phenomena and the area is actually more worth researching the history rather than maybe like the the ex- encounters themselves, which tend to be very personal, very uh, firsthand mm-hmm. and, and not exactly the best evidence. Now, this is something that uh, the Tartaria heads who are here for this that part of this conversation, they're all... Uh, you know, getting very excited seeing this uh, image of a, a star fort in St. Augustine. So what's the scoop on this, man? I mean, I don't personally subscribe very much to the whole every star fort is a part of some ancient empire, but uh, they are marvelous to look at. And, you know, I don't discount the idea that they have a structural energy that may be uh you know, placed for a specific purpose in specific areas, right? I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. The fact, like using ley lines and you have a building with this sort of geometry, you can sort of uh, orient it towards certain positions, maybe even just basically north, south, east, west, or maybe, uh, I don't know if anyone's done this, but if you connect all of the star forts, maybe they... Uh, transect one another's points, right? You can sort of graph them out in that way. But what, what's mm-hmm. the scoop on this St. Augustine star fort? Well, uh, my friend Ben from Analog can probably uh, do a good job of explaining how they might be laid out and arranged from like a grand scale, like a bird's eye, <laughs> bird's eye view, if that's what you mean, like plotting them, kind of like that's, connect the uh, like yeah, connect the dots. Yeah. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be doing stuff like that with Ben from Analog, uh, waking up with Analog. But to go back to what she said about uh, feelings, good feelings. Um, the best feelings I got, the best five, best five, bro, was in the Castillo de San Marco in San Augustine. All of San Augustine to me was very calming and peaceful. Just the stone buildings in general do that. But what what you also have is I forget what I was saying. Well, well, this star fort I will point out looks sort of pale. Uh, even has a white glow to it. Is this made out of Kakina? Is this the star fort? It is. Okay. So this this is Kakina rock. Wow. This is actual blocks of bedrock. Wow. Of coral, so not rock. geopolymer sort no. of cement. This is a- well, maybe it's possible because if if you go deep enough down this rabbit hole, you realize limestone is just naturally cast cement. Mm, right, right. Uh, if you can cast that same mix manually, well, if the finished product was was done the right way you might not even be able to tell mm-hmm. na- natural limestone from kakina mix wow. and these blocks and that's what the pyramids are essentially right. um the pyramids very well very well may have been uh cast poured blocks being poured then placed or placed with a mold then poured into mm. so they're just 
And, you know, there's many different theories on that. No, I've but, heard I've heard the same from other guests, and I tend to agree. I mean, it doesn't make sense unless there was some sort of a you know, different landscape in the desert that they would have hauled all those gigantic mm -hmm. stones uh, as far as they did, even if they had water to do it. So this fort has its Kikina blocks. So it's about blocks the size of like... Uh, a backpack, a laptop, um, a big, big brick block that you'd expect to see in like a government building. Mm. That's that size. And these blocks are made from the limestone bedrock. Here's a good example. This seawall, this seawall alone is a engineering feat. Mm. This is a, in order to build this seawall down into the water, um, about 300 years ago uh, is pretty extraordinary. 400 years ago, maybe. Uh, and they've added additions since then, and those later additions look terrible compared to the original Kikina rock locks that they used in the, in the uh, seawall and the fort itself. Now... Um, this is important because much of St. Augustine, like the city walls and the sidewalks and these little walls in between different buildings and stuff, uh, they're made out of these blocks too. And it's kind of just like the leftover blocks got used for walls and stuff like that. Mm. And I'll show you what I mean. So we're typing in St. Augustine City Gate, 1900. Dr. Longo yeah. is still relying on Google, hasn't made the switch to DuckDuckGo or another platform yet, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. We won't hold that against him. So we're looking at the old gate. Wow, okay. This, I mean, to me, looks like uh, a poured sort of concrete, but well, you know, maybe- Well, we're, just... told, we're told these are just blocks of Kikina mm -hmm. bedrock. And you see that castle in the middle there, mm -hmm. in the background? Yeah. Well, let's go take a look at, at that guy. The Castle Warden. That's Castle Warden. Wow. This building is made out of poured concrete. And today, it's Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> the original auditorium for Ripley's Believe It or Not. How many times have I said Ripley's Believe It or Not in the past month? I've been, uh, every time I talk about uh, when I first started getting into weird stuff, it's all real. It all goes back to a copy of Ripley's Believe It or Not that I found in mm -hmm. my elementary school. <laughs> so this is a, all of these poured, I should have said this, all of these poured buildings are Moorish style. Right. Moorish revival architecture. Right. Well, they're also the first poured concrete buildings in the world. Wow. This St. Augustine area. And that's where and, Ripley's, believe it or not, has its headquarters. How how long have they been there? What was it before that? It was a castle owned by some uh, wealthy yeah, Spanish uh, person? I, it was, well, actually, it was the partner to Henry Flagler. Um, 
William Warden, I believe his name was. Okay. I could be wrong. Um, but Franklin W. Smith had Castle Zareda in St. Augustine. And Villa Zareda is a Moorish castle that he allegedly just built for fun, for no reason. First poured concrete building ever, possibly. And he made it in Moorish style for no reason, just because. Well, then Henry Flagler moved to town. He saw it and he was like, well, dude, you've got to teach me how to, how to pour this stuff. So they decided to make hotels together. And those were the two hotels I was just showing you. The Juan Ponce de Leon Hotel and the Hotel Alcazar was the other one I was showing for a little. And then Castle Warden was made as a private home, allegedly. Also Moorish style in the same technique. So this is the original building that, that this technique was developed for to cast this castle. And what's a castle? A castle is not built. It is cast. It's, it's right there in the word. Right. A, a castle. So these are true castles. These are truer castles than anywhere else in the world. Because mm. these are not built or erected. Yeah. These are these are cast. So a castell. Well and and could this be evidence for maybe the what we're told are castles in Europe maybe having a different uh process of construction. I mean not all of them. I mean some people imagine like the stone fortresses, right, which are kind of like crude brick large blocks with big huge wooden posts and whatnot but uh there are some incredible uh works of of architecture uh, in european castles that you know seem to be you know only possible if they're sculpting and casting them you know i mean some of the shapes that they they make are pretty incredible but wow this is so this is the first presbyterian church uh or the Flagler, Flagler Memorial for Presbyterian Church. I don't know where first mm -hmm. came from. Yeah, Flagler Memorial Presbyterian Church, St. Augustine, mm -hmm. built in the same year, essentially 1887, 1888, around there. And this thing, look at it. It's just sitting in the middle of nothing. Glorious, glorious architecture straight out of Rome. Mm -hmm. This was built in the late 1880s, allegedly, out of the same cast technique in a Moorish, partly Moorish style, Moorish-influenced style. Right. Now, you, you say allegedly, and, you know, I don't mean to push back on that because I know you're not, like, the sole representative of every Tartarian theory out there, but... You know, that's a big assertion that's made. It's like, okay, these buildings, we're told they're built at a certain time, but actually they're older. And, you know, we talked about how uh, at the beginning of this conversation, how Columbus uh, is sort of like, you know, we're psyop to believe that Columbus was the first and nothing happened here before him in terms of European civilization. But uh, if we're you know, to believe that the Moors were here, why wouldn't they have castles, uh, especially considering mm -hmm. these are sort of Moorish designs? And mm -hmm. 
I mean, exactly. there's a lot of architects who went about, you know, reviving this style, but how do we know that that wasn't a revival and rather it was a revision where they were just revising mm -hmm. the history and saying, oh no, this, you know, uh, Yale graduate architect designed this, uh, not, you know, the Spanish 200 years ago. And then, you know, a couple generations go by and people don't remember the original story. They just see what's written in history books. So I'm, you know, I think people should be critical of every, of every theory, of every timeline they're being given, even the Tartarian ones. And Tartaria is kind of turning into this whole Tartarian field realm is kind of turning into a, a joke, a circle jerk. Uh, people are just, you know, in the, stuck in these echo chambers of like mud flood, mud flood, mud flood, or, um, you know, you get great fires. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I and, see you. Yeah. I, we're, we're well aware of it on this show for but sure. I, I understand, I understand. Um, Tartaria is a little, a little out there, especially being called Tartaria, but you know, what would I look for? Cause you're not going to, you're not always going to get the, the truth handed to you on a silver platter. So you have to be able to look at motives. You, you know, you, you can fill in the cracks yourself in history. If you can understand motive, who stands to gain what, who stands to lose what, right. by these changing of hands throughout history. Right. Well, let's talk about Florida. Who came into Florida and established most of what we consider modern Florida, St. Augustine, Palm Beach, Miami, Key West, and all of the railroad in between. Henry Flagler. Henry Flagler is the partner, co-founder of Standard Oil with John D. Rockefeller. So you've probably heard of John D. Rockefeller. Right. Not many, not many people. I'm, I know you have heard of Flagler, but not many people have heard of Henry Flagler. Well, some consider him to be Ford's, sorry, uh, Rockefeller's superior. Wow. Because Rockefeller and, uh, sorry, Flagler and his stepbrother were both uh, original founders. And that's two against one, mm. right? And uh, he also had many ties to these other families, uh, big American um, houses. But Flagler, like I said, built all of the, the uh, railroads down the east coast of Florida. Well, Henry Plant, so you have Henry Flagler and Henry Plant. Henry Plant built the east coast built the railroad on the west coast of Florida down to the Tampa Bay area. And when we, so we were just looking at um, St. Augustine, right? Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at Tampa Bay Hotel, Tampa Bay, 1900. Wow. Well, that looks pretty Moorish to me. Well, you got those um, onion sort of uh, domes, right? Those uh -huh. are considered minarets, kind of minarets. Mm -hmm. They're almost Russian. You're exactly right. They're almost uh, like Greek Orthodox architecture. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's a uh, it's kind of uh, a little beyond just Moorish. 
This is like Islamic influenced Russian architecture. It almost looks like. And that connection is extremely important because Tampa Bay is not just Tampa. Tampa Bay is a bay. And in that bay are multiple cities. Mm. There's Tampa. Well, there's also St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg is the little uh, peninsula that juts out Mm -hmm. into Tampa Bay. And St. Petersburg, as we were saying before, is probably a Tartarian signature of St. Petersburg, Russia, which is in the Baltic Sea. You have the Gulf Stream going from St. Petersburg, Florida, to St. Petersburg, Russia. And you have this type of architecture in both both cities. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. There's a, a strange connection with uh, St. Petersburg and a guy named James Shelby Downard who wrote the Kingkill 33 manuscript that became kind of famous in the conspiracy underworld and also... Uh, he has a strange connection to the uh, pavers, people who asphalt paved much of the roads throughout the south of the United States, not mm-hmm. as far south as Florida. I don't think he was in St. Petersburg for any other reason than he needed to uh, find a place to get away from where he's from. But yeah, he, he came up in some research we were doing a few months ago on a different show, my, my friend Michael Wan and I, who does all the Susquehanna alchemy stuff. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that the way we go about researching this stuff, you know, you're digging through all of this history that occurred where you live. And, you know, I think part of the, the strange thing about going about this research is where it intersects with your own life. You know, I mean, that's, kind of happening with me and uh, Skull and Bones and, and researching this stuff in in New Haven and how it connects to the, the broader picture. And I'm sure you have similar uh, accounts with your own life where maybe things synchronistically overlapped or, you know, a book falls off the shelf and all of a sudden you're figuring out something that was right on the, you know, the next uh, clue that you needed or what have you. But uh Dr. Longo, we're at that two-hour mark. It's been quite a conversation. We've covered a lot. I think Florida was the Garden of Eden. I don't know. I'm sold. And I have watched a couple of your videos, so I encourage everybody to go check that out. Would you tell them where they can go and support you? Do you have a website, or is everything just on YouTube? How can people get in touch with you and and show you some support? Mm -hmm. I'm most active on YouTube. Uh, pretty much only on YouTube and Instagram. So YouTube at Old World Florida and Instagram Old underscore World underscore Florida. Right on. So thanks for having me. Yeah, Mark. man. No, this has been a pleasure. Like I alluded to many times, uh, we've spoken once before on Illuminati Confirmed episode 19, and then uh, we had a conversation on your show with Juan. So that was, you know, a lot of nice prep for me to have you on this show. I definitely want to have you on uh, my other podcast, Esoteric America, and maybe focus just on one city 
whichever mm-hmm. one you you choose whichever one has uh the most connections or whatever's particularly interesting at that moment but either way this has been a great episode uh any final thoughts before we wrap up i mean there's a lot of people that listen to this show that want to go out and do their own research and they i'm certain feel inspired after hearing everything you've talked about do you have any tips for any would-be uh sleuthers researchers out there yeah for sure um you can follow the mounds pretty much every state in the continental united states i would say has a mound Uh, every state has mounds for sure mound complexes earthworks rock carvings something like this some whether it's an anomaly whether it's something that makes your state unique there's always these equivalents across states whereas whether it's the rune stones right in ohio pennsylvania um there's all these little threads that you can pull and they'll always lead you lead you down somewhere and we also i didn't start going through uh local museums till recently uh when I started out, I was just on my laptop, but uh, once I made the Saksha documentary, we started going to museums in these different cities. And uh, you'd be surprised what you can find in there. Pretty much every, all native history is obscured. You know, there wasn't just one type of Native American that was spread across America. So that in itself is a rabbit hole to be plunged down but uh that's really it every state does have as much as much as i want florida to be special and i know it is special every state has this amount of rabbit holes Mm. you know old world history for sure yeah no we're all blessed that you found yourself to be born in florida it's a big state and someone's got to go through it and cover it so yeah thanks brother i appreciate it and if anybody's listening who lives in florida if you've seen one of these anchor stones and it's not in dr longo's videos maybe give him an email send him a message mm-hmm. comment and tell him because i'm sure you're you're on the lookout still uh, i've gotten a lot of cool tips from listeners that way uh, about different sites around here in new england and uh I agree, man. There's many, many things that we can plunge (laughs) and get out of this uh, deep rabbit hole here in the esoteric America. But I look forward to our future conversations. Until next time, everybody listening, have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Dr. Narco Longo, a friend of Juan's and now a friend of mine. I've done three podcasts in total with Dr. Narco Longo. Uh, The final episode of Illuminati Confirmed. Go sign up on the Patreon to hear the full story. Um, And yeah, Juan and I are going to continue doing a podcast together, so don't fret. 
Uh, we already put out one episode of a Patreon show that he's been doing uh, called Dopamine Deep Dives, which I was a part of this past weekend. So you can find that on the Patreon. Look forward to a new show featuring Juan and I and a mysterious new co-host, maybe a continuation of Illuminati Confirmed. Who knows? Who knows? So anyways, Dr. Narco Longo, very interesting fellow, like Juan, lives in Florida. Obviously, you can go to his YouTube channel, Old World Florida, and he's got some great stuff on there. One of the first videos that I watched was about Frank Lloyd Wright and his Mayan revival and brutalist architecture. And what's weird, synchronistically, I was walking the other day and I saw a poster in Yale's campus that said, um, Save Our Monsters. And it was a poster for a brutalism um, protest or, or conference or something, some sort of event to stop the destruction of some of the ugliest forms of architecture ever conceived. Hmm, interesting. Why is Yale trying to preserve it? Maybe because they're dorks with their niche interests and quirks? Or maybe because they're communists, socialists, Marxists, or some sort of strain of something in between those monoliths? Um, and maybe that's the motivation, because you might be familiar with the brutalist architecture from Dr. Narco Longo's video or other videos in this same strain of going through architecture and piecing together what seems to be a unraveling puzzle. I, I think the Tartaria stuff is very interesting. I think the puzzle is interesting. I don't know if I think the puzzle adds up to Russia, but I do think that the old world is fascinating. So... For me, Old World and Tartaria are somewhat interchangeable, but not synonymous, right? So, anyways, Dr. Narco Longo doesn't just have stuff about architecture. Obviously, we talked about the stone anchors. He's got a video about the secret history of cats. I think, I don't know if it was specific to Florida cats. I haven't gotten a chance to watch that one yet. But we mentioned in our second conversation the Windover Bog people and he features them in one of his videos and as I was on that walk in between my two bookstores that I frequent um, I found a poster that I just described but as I was saying I got a book from one of these bookstores and it's titled who Discovered America? The Untold History of the Peopling of the Americas by author Gavin Menzies and Ian Hudson. Which is a very interesting book. It's a New York Times bestseller. So, you know, in some ways that does raise a little bit of a red flag. We've got a Royal Geographical Society guy writing this book. Someone who is in the Royal Navy. And he seems to be focusing on the Chinese angle uh, of the Chinese exploration of the New World, which is interesting. While chapter 17 focuses on 
Stone Age Sailors, the Windover Bog People of Florida. So I think in this outro, we're going to take a look at this chapter, maybe read some portions of the chapter and comment on it. And uh, yeah, let's do it. So it starts as... In 1982, a backhoe operator outside of Titusville, Florida, discovered bones as he dug into the rich soil at the bottom of a pond at Windover Farm, which was being prepared for a housing subdivision. That discovery led to the start of the Windsor Archaeological Research Project. Eventually, this would provide some scattered impressions about the lives and customs of a lost civilization that still unidentified was perhaps of European origin people who came to the new world more than 7,000 years ago. After the first discovery of the bones, further investigation revealed the graveyard with the remains of about 168 individuals along with their implements and artifacts. The cemetery rests in the peat layer beneath the pond close to Interstate 95 in Brevard County, Florida, within a few miles of Cape Canaveral and about 60 miles from Disney World. Wow. Did you hear that, folks? 168 individuals. And I don't know, maybe they got hit by a hurricane or something because they all ended up in this bog and were preserved in the bog. Now, there are some cases of bog mummies that are found that were victims of types of ceremonial murder, ritual sacrifice, these sorts of uh, well, historians say arcane practices. I think conspiracy theorists would argue these things are still going on to this day. So who knows how these Windover bog people ended up in there. Uh, they seem to be able to make a wild guess at the age of these individuals. But, you know, there's a lot of reasons to call those kind of things things into question i am not an expert on dna sequencing nor am i an expert on the testing of dna sequencing but the chapter goes into a little bit more on this let's let's continue so just a reminder land developers stumble upon these bodies in a bog or a swamp the developer of the site, EKS Corporation, called in archaeologists and funded a project to study and conduct radiocarbon testing, which produced the result that the human remains were more than 7,000 years old. Wow, there it is. As more skeletal remains emerged from the bog, scientists described the area as one of the most significant ancient cemeteries ever found. The characteristics of the bog layer had left the remains in a remarkable state of preservation. One striking and poignant find about the remains was a child determined to be about three years old, wrapped in fabric that was made from native fibrous plants and with toys in her arms, an object resembling a mortar and pestle and a turtle shell. The degree of preservation, in fact, was so remarkable that scientists found brain tissue. First in a woman judged to be 45 years old and later in 1991 in recovered skulls, in some cases, the brains were complete and intact. The brain matter had decreased in mass to about a third of its original size, but the characteristics of the brain were easily recognizable. 
each hemisphere and other details were evident. The discovery of brain matter that old and the opportunity to analyze brain chemistry and DNA was unique. Wow, 7,000 years ago, and the brain was relatively similar, at least after being, you know, shrunken down times three. Still, you could see the hemispheres in the same way that we have them. What does that say about these Stone Age nonsense theories that the Native Americans were Stone Age people? When you have cultures, whether they were European or not, who were here 7,000 years ago with fully formed brains, or at least we can speculate their brains were not um, lesser than, at least by observation. So we continue reading here this excellent chapter, just one chapter, please, uh, lords of the public domain and the licensing gods, please don't strike us down for reading this wonderful book. We're just taking one little chapter. Glenn H. Doran, chap <clears throat> chairman of the anthropology department of Florida State University, was once one of the first scientists to study the find. Doran describes such details as extremely worn teeth and the absence of ceramic artifacts, which indicated that the gravesite was likely more than 3,000 years old. Their ancestors, however, appeared to have arrived in North America as many as 7,000 years earlier than that. There also were indications that the recovered skulls had shapes that were not consistent with the heads of people usually categorized as Native Americans. Doran and other anthropologists were able to catalog the characteristics of the 168 people in the cemetery. They established profiles of who the people were, how they lived, and how long they lived. Okay, so it seems like they, they made some sort of ceremony out of burying people in this way. It doesn't seem like it was a mass grave or some sort of massacre, but who knows? Who knows? Dr. Joseph Lorenz, a geneticist then at the Coriel Institute for Medical Research, studied the DNA of the bones of five individuals among the Windover Bog people. He expected to find typical DNA markers for Native Americans, but instead found they appeared to be European. Further examinations of the brain material also indicated the Bog people were of European origin. Very interesting, very interesting, and you know, definitely a reason to keep this quiet maybe that's why this is the first time you may be hearing this or maybe you have seen dr narco longo's video maybe you've heard about this from this book or elsewhere who knows but i think i will skip the next chapter because it's uh talking about haplogroups and a lot of well actually you don't need to skip past this in the Lost Empire of Atlantis, I discussed how genetic markers were providing key information about ancient migrations, among other issues. I focused on the spread of haplogroup X2. I noted that there is considerable debate and questioning in analyzing DNA to determine whether mutations took place for sub-haplogroups and when. A research team led by Mayor Riedla, a geneticist at the University of Tartu, in Estonia, identified the X2 haplogroup in 2003 and described its 
incidence among European and North Americans, but not among populations of Asia or the East. Sarah Finila has listed the percentages of X2 found in Europe and America. Michael Brown and Douglas Wallace, Emory University researchers, search for this marker X found at low frequencies in the remains of ancient Americans. But I noted that the high percentages that could be determined, the X2 haplogroup, appears to have originated in the Near East and particularly near Eastern Anatolia. That would include the Minoan civilization established in Crete and the Aegean Sea area. Nevertheless, there is no certainty about when members of European haplogroup X2 arrived in the New World. Ah, see, exactly like Dr. Narco Longo was saying. Phoenicians, the Aegean Sea, Anatolia. Hmm, interesting. Maybe, uh, maybe this is some sort of... This book in my hands is some sort of misdirection. This book says Minoans. Maybe I just don't know any better and those are the same thing. Um, the dating of the Bog people of Florida at 6,990 to 8,120 years ago based on their X2 genetic marker is broadly comparable on both sides of the Atlantic. So it seems to me that Lorenz's analysis is corroborated by DNA results of several different European studies. The Bog people of Windover were Europeans who settled in the Americas from 8,190 BC. They came by sea with substantial members in many ships. Wow. That's incredible stuff. There's the DNA evidence, folks. So, take that for what it's worth, there's more, just a little bit more in this chapter that talks about Florida and how there's cultural similarities between the Native American Florida populations and their artwork and the Minoan civilization. Gavin Menzies and Ian Hudson, who discovered America, the untold history of the peopling of the Americas. And I say go to a used bookstore. You never know what you'll find synchronicity that guides the way and these books always tend to fit right in to what i'm looking into that week and another example uh homie Romy and the friends juan and all those guys they were talking about lycanthropy and i found a book on the shelf i didn't buy it because it was a novel i wasn't particularly interested in a novel but it was an interesting one called lycanthrope uh, again, didn't really look too far deep into what that was, who wrote it, etc. But I noted the synchronicity. There's another book synchronicity that I'm forgetting. But that's a... Oh, Landscape and Memory by Simon Shata. I think that's his name. Great book. Really glad I found it. A little disappointed I found it after I spoke with the great Joshua Cutchin. That episode will be out soon. Speaking of great conversations, I uh, have another great conversation coming up with Howdy Mikowski. So we're going to be continuing a lot of these old world conversations, diving into history, and that's it. 
expect more bonus content on the Patreon, you can go to my website, myfamilythinksomecrazy.com. Go over to the tabs, the menu. You can go to the research blog and see my latest research on Skull and Bones. You can see the slides that I present when I go and do interviews on this topic. And if you're listening and you have a podcast, go and check it out. Maybe you can have me on your show and I can walk you through the slides. And you and your audience will learn what's going on in New Haven. You can ask yourself whether it's a New Heaven or an Armageddon. That's the title of this project. Uh, Anyways, we've got a Patreon. We've got the scene. Edition 2, Nemesis, the New England mapping of megalithic, esoteric, sacred sites, and Indian stone structures. Edition 2. It's available now on the Ko-Fi store. It's in the link descriptions. Hit the link in the descriptions, what I meant to say. What else we got? We got Twitter. We got Instagram. Telegram is my favorite place. Telegram's got the best social media atmosphere. A bunch of cool people talking in the chats. If you're a cool person, come on over. Have some cool conversations in the Telegram chat. We got a bunch of cool conversations coming up. Oh, shout out to Greg Carlwood and Gordon White, former guests on this show. Hope to have both of those great podcasters and great men back on this show one day. They just put out a great conversation on rune soup the uh 10 greatest conspiracy books of all time according to them you know opinion base list or or maybe just based on what they have in their collection and i really got to hand it over to them i thought that was a fantastic conversation i recommend anybody listening go and check that out i picked up a couple of books uh, on amazon after listening to their suggestions so the library is growing the library is certainly growing and uh yeah it's all thanks to you folks the listeners of this show value for value support from the patreon support from the rockfin support from ko-fi and all the other places if you do feel the christmas spirit the holiday spirit rather if you're feeling the holiday spirit, send us a one-time donation. We'll give you a shout-out on the show. That would really be appreciated as we move forward into the Yuletide. I just spoke with my friend Al from Norway, and he described that in Norway, they celebrate Christmas or Yule for six days. We're getting gypped over here in America. We don't get six days of Christmas. They get six days of Christmas. And on the second Christmas Eve, the second day of Christmas week, they go and trick-or-treat. They do the caroling, singing songs all dressed up, and they get candy. Look at that. Two holidays in one. That's amazing. I think we're going to have a Norwegian Christmas at the Mystic Mark household this winter. And why not? I'm a podcaster. I make my own schedule. Uh, It's not easy. I took a risk. I took a leap getting into this. Uh, It's definitely not the lavish lifestyle you might imagine. Definitely a minimum wage job, but it's the best job I've ever had. And I couldn't do it without everybody tuning in, 
So if you're out there working a job that you enjoy, mildly, uh, <laughs> what's the right word? You mildly, <laughs> you mildly accept, or maybe you hate, anywhere on the spectrum. If you're working and listening to this show, uh, shout out to you. We appreciate you, and I hope this show helps you get through your day and broaden your horizon, help you reach enlightenment. That's what we're all trying to do in our own ways, step by step. That's what I'm trying to do here with this show. So this has been a very long intro, nice long episode, grooving into the Monday, the first Monday of December, the last month of 2022, and it's going to be weird. I like the, the triple two year i think that's a cool year two 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 so we're going to be going to 2023 but i'm always going to remember 2022 the year that we hit a million downloads the year that i spoke to david ike the year that we i don't i mean we've discovered a megalith if you don't know what i'm talking about go and check out scene edition two you can find it in the description hit the link Speaking of hit, you got to get yourself a hit kit, hit kit, hit kit alert, our value for value sponsor, the hit kit listener of this show who owns his own business, is creating his own future, he's paving his own way, blazing his own trail, literally with the hit kit, I'm using it right now, you hear that, my lighter is in the hit kit, lighting my blunt, getting the party started. And if you're in that moment when you're getting the party started and you're like, where's my spliff? Where's my blunt? Where's my joint? Where's my J? Where's my hooch? Where's my grass? Where's my Maui Wowie? Where's my Acapulco gold? Where's my big fat one? Where's my buds? Where's my Kona? Where's my paw? Where's my tie stick? Where's my ganja? Where's my reefer? Where's my cannabis? Get yourself a hit kit. You'll never lose your weed again. Hitkit.us. And that's the show today, folks. Old World Florida, YouTube. Do I have to remind you? And plus, my man does a show with our friend Juan on the One on One podcast, The Coquina Cowboys. And don't get excited, folks. They're talking about that coquina, that mineral. Maybe that does excite you. That mineral. All these stone anchors and the Flagler Memorial College and all these other buildings are made out of. What if those were all there before Ponce de Leon stepped foot in Florida? Could be. Who knows? Anyways... Until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine Questioning everything, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war of the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science
masters know the power of the mantra repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya subliminal messages hijack your perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey I embark with the squad forever meditating on the concept of God gotta know the facts never hold back cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap Dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy. You might be feeling stressed out. Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I am walking a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out robbing him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls they highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35 Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade.